Greetings and welcome to Life of Brian dot 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 Mannix. That is the podcast. Thanks to Murcott's Driving Excellence, and here he is, Brian Mannix. Oh, good day, Kev. Um, not a very glamorous day today up here in the in the penthouse on the Gold Coast because today is housework day. Very unrocking, I would suggest. But I've uh, done the dishes. I've made the bed. I'm going to do a load of washing. I need to mop the floors. Got to sweep the thing. Very boring shit. Wow, a day in the mm. life of a rock star involves like you know stuff that we well, all do. Well, even even rock stars have to um, <laughs> tidy their house. Gone. Otherwise, their house looks like Sid Vicious's house. Well, and, um, gone are the days when you could trash the joint and then say, have people come in. Uh, no one does that anymore. No, I'm the people coming in to <laughs> clean up the trash. Yeah. And, ah, that's where my TV is. Let me have a look. There you go. Yeah, shit, down by the pool. I knew I had a crazy night last night. Found all, oh, again. The, again? The TV. TV is down by the pool in about 15 pieces. There you go. Yeah, I think that's why hotels started to put big screens around swimming pools because it stopped the guests from throwing the pools, the uh, TVs into the pool. Uh, so, uh, it, is, it is the most stupid thing to do. I know in our film clip, The Party, we threw a couple of TVs off the top of the building as it was the cliche, but, you know, it's your TV. What are you going to do when you don't have the TV? You can't watch it. <laughs> You know, what's the point in trashing the room that you're staying in? It makes no sense. Go and trash somebody else's room, sure. Keep yours tidy. Yes. And that's that's today's message. Uh, ah. and, the, and the pioneer of that was the, the, the late, great Keith Moon, who was, you know, just notorious for driving Rolls Royces into swimming pools and doing ridiculously stupid things like that, uh, none of which made any sense whatsoever. No, no. He, um, I started reading his book and I got turned it off halfway through because I just got sick of him crashing cars and wrecking things. It's like, yeah, come on, that's great, but something else. But no, there was nothing else. Just him driving in the pools, TVs out the window, gluing shit to the roof. What an idiot. And now you know what Keith Moon needed? He needed a defensive driving course from Murcotts. Oh, beautiful segue, Kev. <laughs> so if you find yourself driving a Rolls Royce into a swimming pool, it's time to have a good hard look at yourself and get down to Murcotts and they'll teach you how to drive around the pool uh, rather than straight through it. Yes, yes. That's it. They're very good like that. They're, they're geniuses in that field. Well, they are indeed. And if uh, people want to ring them, if you find that your car is in the pool as we speak, get on the phone. <laughs> there you go. And uh, get on the phone right now, one three hundred triple five five seven six, and also ring the tow truck, get your, uh, your Rolls Royce out of the pool. Yep. Bubbles up, murcots.edu.au. That's uh, that's their website address too. Check that out. Uh, and you won't be driving <laughs> into any pools anytime soon. Now, we've got two great, uh, great stars, Australian uh, stars who've made it overseas in a mammoth way but over a, an enormously different period of time. We're going to go way back to the 60s with our mm. first guest. Yes. 
His name is Colin Peterson. Now, he was uh, he's synonymous with a, a couple of major things that happened uh, 60s, 70s and into the 80s. One was acting and one was drumming. That's right. He was uh, smiley yes. and he drums for the Bee Gees. And actually, um, I noticed up here that Colin Peterson's Bee Gees are performing up here, I think, in the next, in about a month. So it's a really good Bee Gees tribute band and Colin gets up and tells Bee Gees stories, and, um, which he talks about in the thing. Yep. But it's coming up here and, um, yeah, so and the trouble is with this interview is like I did the interview with you yeah. and then a week later he was at the Ghost Head Club and he was the speaker there. I thought, gee, I heard it was last week. <laughs> so, and so tom- tomorrow I'll listen to this podcast, make sure it all came out, and that'll be the third time I've heard his story in the space of three weeks. So You'll, you'll know more about Colin Peterson's story than Colin Peterson. No, not, not really. He knows his, his attention to detail, his memory is just superb, absolutely it, superb. It, disappointing, though, uh, Kev, is that uh, dear old Colin never drove a Rolls Royce into a swimming pool. So. Not that we're aware of and not that he owns up to. Well, he obviously went to Mercot's, I'd reckon. I reckon he must have. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, how it all started for him with Smiley and with the drumming and with meeting the Bee Gees and how that all finished. So that'll all come up. Uh, and then our second guest is a man who uh, has found international success after having a very, very good uh, musical career here, uh, both uh, as a solo performer and in a band, and that's Rick Springfield. Yeah, now I take it this was an early start interview, Kev. This was a – Rick was in Niagara Falls and it was about half past six at night and it was about 8 o'clock or 7.30 in the morning here, so – So you did the interview by yourself because I, I was I took one snoring. for the team. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. I was busy driving a car into the pool. So <laughs> well, you we very go. well could have been. Um, <laughs> uh, but Rick was uh, terrific. He's got a new album out. It's a 20-track album called Automatic and uh, he's singing fantastically. The songs are really good. And I think you're going to enjoy the chat. We're going to talk. Uh, when I did talk to him, we talk about Jesse's Girl. We talk about Eleanor Rigby and the Zoot Days. We talk about all sorts of things, and uh, including, of course, the new album and what he's up to these days. And we even talk, believe it or not, a little bit of footy at one stage. Really? Yeah. It doesn't strike me as a footy person. All right, well, you, I guess. well, when you hear this interview, you are going to be you're going to fall off your chair when you hear who he barracks for. And who he grew up barracking for as a kid. The way I drink, Kev, I'll probably fall off the chair before it even comes up. <laughs> it is late in the interview too, so we could be in trouble. Uh, uh, let's get to our first guest. It is Colin Peterson, uh, Smiley, the actor, the the the, the uh, movie series, and of course, uh, drummer and a full time, fully fledged member of the Bee Gees in their absolute heyday. What started first? Was it the acting or the, was it the drumming or what came first in your... your... No, oh, no. The, the first thing in my life was basically an absolute fascination with music and I used to listen to the radio a lot and subsequently capped away at the dining room table uh-huh. or in those days it was the kitchen table that people had big kitchens with a table in the middle of the kitchen. And I remember many, many times my mother, not so much my mother, but my father would say, do not tap your knife and fork at the table, <laughs> right? Uh, and and I, I, I would have picked up a little pattern or something 
with one of the current records that was going on and just couldn't help myself. And then I think another link there was that I was sent, my sister was a very keen dancer and she was going to a dancing class up there. And she suggested that I, I came along and learned to tap dance. And I had no qualms about it because in those days there were lots of um, stars, um, uh, tap dancers, Fred Astaire. Yeah, Jim um, Kelly. Yeah, people like that. And so I went along. And I took it very seriously, these little patterns with your feet, you know, da-dum, da-dum, left, right, right, left. And so that, 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 that didn't deter me from tapping away at the table. But I think looking back, there's a correlation there between the rhythm in your feet and you couldn't help but get your hands going in emulating those patterns. And so the rhythmic side of it, I think, sort of kicked in there. Then we moved to Margate on the Redcliffe Peninsula and I joined the Humpy Bong school band. This really literally is the first band that I ever joined. And... It was a huge band. There were like 50 kids in this band. We used to march around the playground every morning. And we had a little fan club of parents. And they used to stand at the, at, on, at, along the fence and watch us go through our little routine. And then I saw that there were a, a couple of drummers in the band. The rest were girls. And like I'm a naive little kid, I'm about six years old or something like that. But nevertheless, there was an attraction there with all these girls, right? Right. Um, And there was a teacher there and she must have been really good because she taught me those marching patterns, you know, all that sort of stuff. The problem was I was so damn small and the drum was so big and I had to haul it around with me and if that wasn't enough, I had to march at the same time. <laughs> so that that was a challenge, okay? And my uncle Bill McLeod on my mother's side um, who – turned out to be quite a mentor. He phoned mum just to check up and he said, oh, how's the young lad getting on? And mum said, oh, he's playing in the school band. And Billy said, is he any good? And mum said, well, by all accounts, the masters at the school are saying that he's really quite talented. And I'm sent, I've decided to send him to drumming lessons in Brisbane. And Billy said, but there's no point in that, Edna. And, and mum says, why is there no point in this, Billy? 
And her response was, if this boy doesn't have a kit of drums to come home to, to practice on, it's a waste of time. And Billy said, get him a kit of drums. Mum's reply was, we can't afford a kit of drums, Billy. Drums were very expensive in those days. You know, they were like 240-odd pounds or something. Wow. Yeah, for a basic kit, you know, like, um, you know, floor tom, tom on on, on the bass drum, hi-hat, of course, snare and a seat and one cymbal. Like, that was a lot of money. Yeah, they were pr- Billy said, I'll tell you what, I'll buy him a kit of drums. Now, Billy was a very successful bookmaker and at that time was very wealthy. But he was no fool. He just didn't throw his money around. He said, I'll buy him a kit of drums on one condition, that you go, go down to the lessons and if he doesn't show real commitment in a month or so, I'll just I'll just come up there, Edna, and I'll take the drums away from him to teach him a lesson. Was this the same? Was this the same set of drums that uh, the kit that you finished up on Brisbane Airport on the tarmac of Brisbane Airport playing yes, it playing would, for Gene Krupa? Yes, it would have been. Wow! I I dedicated myself. I I think I became quite obsessive, to tell you the truth. But I had a wonderful teacher in Brisbane. His name was Harry Lebler. I remember times with Harry, he'd immediately say, are you doing okay? But the purpose of of this job here is to play with other musicians because the rest of it is a waste of time unless you learn to play with other musicians. Yeah. At this point, Colin, when you're learning the drums and doing that, have you already done acting yet or is acting something that's... No, the acting, the, the acting came later. I remember the first mention of it. We were sitting around this little country kitchen table and Mum comes into the, into the room. She'd gone out to get... The, the morning paper, the Courier Mail. And she glances at it and she passes the um, classifieds to Dad because he was like like that character in in, in the movie It Escapes Me Now. Castle, oh, yep. Yeah. You're dead right there. Yeah. And he literally used to say, this man is joking, yeah. right? <laughs> and then Mum passes it to me and on the front page was this article about this English producer coming over to Australia to find the right boy to play the lead in this story about a little kid in a country town. Simple tale, you know, saving up to buy a bicycle. And I passed it back to her and I said, Mum, I'm playing the drums. I don't know anything about acting. And this shows her foresight. She said, Colin, you've been getting up on the, on different stages, Cloudland, bless it, right? What a loss. Yeah, no, I know, I remember it well. And the Brisbane City Hall, and you're communicating to these audiences 
these are big jazz bands I'm playing with. Through your music, your job here is to communicate with an audience like you've been doing, but with words. The audience won't be there. They'll only see it later on. But you've got to feel that you're performing like you have been as a drummer. I was so nervous the first take of the first scene. They filmed it chronologically. The first take, I remember, I'm so nervous, right? And the moment could have been three takes or something like that. And I pulled it off and that fear vanished. And that led to a period in my life which has stayed with me to this day, basically because the character that I was blessed to be given was such an endearing character. Smiley. He was. And and the script was beautifully written. And the people that around me that we all worked together in creating that film were were all treated me so well and my of a night time my mum and I would go through the script and she'd say there is no point, Colin, in getting on that set tomorrow and wasting anyone's time because it takes a team to pull something like this together. And you've got to step up and do your job. And we go through the script for a couple of hours and I think, Mum, Mum, I've, I've learned it, I've learned it. And then she'd say, you're only halfway there, boy. What you need to do is to act the other part as well and we'd swap roles. And I think that was genius on my mother's part. It just came easy because the script was so good. It felt felt so right for me. It was a terrific cast as well. You know, some really big-name actors in the, in Smiley. Yeah, there were. Sir Ralph Richardson and, and John McCallum. They'd established their careers really on stage, and there were several actors there that hadn't been in films before. They made their livelihood out of radio serials. Mm. Those radio serials were a big part of Australian society, but the key to it really was being prepared through my mother, but I had a wonderful director there, Anthony Kimmons. And there were little bits of genius with Anthony Kimmons. For instance, from day one, he never off screen referred to me as Colin. It was always smiley, smiley, smiley. So, you know, it's history, but it's never left me and I'm really proud of it. And it was a huge success in England and, and Australia, of course. That led me on to two further movies in London, The Scamp with Dickie Attenborough at the time, later Sir Richard Attenborough, Mm. and then Lord Attenborough. And then a further film, I was 12 at the time, with Dana Andrews, the little girl who played the Lee. And then suddenly the carpet was swept underneath me with the announcement from my parents that, okay, Colin, you've had this experience, 
we're pulling you out of movies and it's time for you to go back to school. Also adding that if this is really in your heart, Colin, there's no reason later on in life when you've got an education that you can't give it a go again and and, and pick up the pieces, which, as it turns out, I, I never did. I tried. I went to England, went to acting school for a couple of weeks, and then the Gibbs arrived. And I'd been playing with a band called Steve and the Board. Steve Kipner, yeah. Yeah. Mainly in Melbourne, we kicked off in Sydney, but spent most of our time in Melbourne. Then I decided to go back to London to give the acting a go. I had made very close friends with the Gibbs. Morris was kind of the first one that you got really close to? Yes, he was. He is a lovely man, Morris, absolutely. Full of fun, you know, and commitment. Little, little issue there because he wasn't the big star like Barry uh, he didn't he didn't participate in the writing the kids were they were all, all talented individually but when you put the three together it just was 10 times what it was you know there, there was just that magic Colin, really unusual situation uh, that, you know, they, as brothers, they kind of were, were the, I guess, the mainstays of the band, but uh, you and Vince became partners in the band rather than just the drummer and the and the guitarist. You actually were partners, so, so you were full partners oh, in, we in were, the group. We were promoted as a five-piece band. Yeah, absolutely. There was a really close bond there with us. It lasted, look, things don't last forever. If there's something I've learned in life, uh, that's a fact of life. But we had, it all started to implode just about two years, two and a half years later. Egos came into play, um, questions about finances came into play, and so it sort of disintegrated. Really, didn't little Colin Peterson b- bring up a few questions that weren't very comfortable with Mister Stigwood that uh, that might have, yes. that might have uh, precipitated uh, the the pathways closing there? I think it did. Yes. I think that that was that was the core of it. I saw a conflict of interest there with Robert. Now you know we always I ended up with a a second-hand Ferrari for a year there or something like that. Right. You know, we'd go to the best restaurants and all that sort of thing. But this conflict of interest was brought up to me by an American attorney, and Marty Mashat was his name. And he pointed out to me that when you sign a management agreement with a person, their obligation is to get the best deal possible for you. Now, what ended up there is that we signed management agreement with Robert, and then he signed us to itself for recording. Now, what he was doing there, he was acting on our behalf in negotiating with himself. (laughs) (laughs) It, It wasn't uncommon, and the band were falling apart at the same time. So I called him out on that and I sent him auditors. Uh, the nerve of me at this age, right, that Robin had left, Vince had left, and they, they were doing the same thing. 
And so I think in Robert's mind, he's got to go. And so that chapter in my life ended. And I, I don't have any regrets. I don't live with regret. I'm just so honoured. It's not quite the word, but I just feel so... Um, I'm not a religious person either, but I'll use the term blessed. Yeah. Mainly because I had the opportunity with both the three years I spent making films and... roughly around the same time, making um, music with the Gibb Brothers to have worked with such talented people in their field. And with the Gibbs, I would take it to the extent of dealing with genius. Oh 
There's a couple of reasonably good songs there, I would have thought, Brian. Don't you think? Yeah, I wouldn't mind writing one or two of those. <laughs> uh, wow. Yeah. Uh, um, if, if I'd written one of those, I'd probably own the whole building here rather than just the penthouse. Yeah, but, no. Um, there you go. You would. Uh, now, we have more of uh, Colin and some of the stories of the days on the road with the BGS and all that coming up in the next edition of the Life of Brian podcast. Uh, with thanks, of course, to Murcott's Driving Excellence. You can give them a call. They're available one for three, you right uh, now. one three hundred triple five five seven six. That number again, one three hundred triple five five seven six, And that's the number I called to talk to Rick Springfield. Uh, and here he is talking about his uh, brand-new album, Automatic, and a whole lot of other stuff, including uh, The Zoot, Eleanor Rigby and Jesse's Girl. Right. Hello, Kevin. <laughs> Hello, Rick. How are you doing? Good. I'm good. The tour started, how, how did it kick off? Yeah, it's uh, been great, actually. The tour, The shows have been fabulous. Energy is... Of the audience has been over the top, and it's uh, and the, and they're all good the people. I'm traveling with are all really good guys, which is very important. The last two he did was Colin Hay and and John White, who are just two fabulous human beings. Now Colin's a total jerk. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, he's yeah, he was he is awesome. Um, I still text him too now and then. He's out. Uh, he went out with Ringo after uh, he finished our tour. But he was a lovely guy, and um, and John I love too. I've known John for a long time, and uh, I love his, his voice is one of my favourite voices. Yeah, and John has one of the uh, the dark sense of humour that I'm sure that you share with him as well. Yeah, he, he's actually on this tour uh, intermittently too. Yeah. Um, so the set list for for this tour, what how how far have you gone back to to put it together for the for the audience in America who don't know that early stuff that we know here in Australia? Well, the, the thing with a package tour like this, which I always loved, I mean, when I, when I first started going to see shows, there was, there were, you know, like, like when I saw the Beatles in 64 at Festival Hall, there were five other acts on with them. And I love, and, and you, you know, but they only played 20 minutes, but it was 20 amazing minutes. But so you have to cut your set down a bit. So we're only doing an hour. Usually we do two or a bit longer, but, um, so we'd only do it now. So it's it's a kind of a hits package. So obviously we've got to do, you know, all the hits, which I'm fortunate to to have some. <laughs> <laughs> you have plenty. But um, we we do uh, um, some some deeper cuts that have that work really well on stage and have meaning, and I can talk about them. And we do uh, a new song from uh, the new album, Automatic, as well. So what are you doing from the new album? The song Automatic. Actually, we we're doing that one because it's. Uh, it's great energy, and it, it, so far it's been amazing. For considering it's, you know, usually when you say we're going to do a new song, it's like, oh, I've got to go to the bathroom. <laughs> yeah, I actually went, actually went to an Elton John concert in like I don't know the seventies or something it was, and uh, and he did a new song, so I got up and went to the bathroom, and there was a line to the guy's bathroom, and I get in line, and the guy in front of me turns around and goes, "New song, huh?" <laughs> Uh, automatic now. Automatic was a song that came to you in a dream. Is that right? Yeah, it is actually. Uh, uh, usually, when you wake up and you say, "I dreamt a great song," you'll record it. You'll you know sing it into a tape recorder or something, and then a day later you go, "Oh, that's here, there, and everywhere. It's already been written." <laughs> or you know, that's paint it black. It's already been written. But um, this was. Uh, I listened to it again the next morning, and it was. Uh, 
it was nothing that I recognized. So, uh, you know, you, then you got to do the hard work of finishing the song. But uh, it, came out, it came out very differently, and I don't really know where it came from or why, but um, it works great live. And uh, I think when you get in a writing binge like I get in, you start, you do dream things like that. Yeah. Was was Automatic the album, was that a writing binge? Was that, I know you've been quoted as saying, 23-minute songs with the best and biggest hooks I could possibly find. Was that was that your mission and, and you'd sat down and binge that virtually? Yeah, I, I binge write. I don't write nine to five you know, 365 days a week, I, I write on inspiration and then have to sweat through it all to hope that I, you know, get something decent. Um, and that's the same with prose writing too. I've written two novels and also my own autobiography. And that, again, that's a binge writing. You know, I don't, uh, I don't continually do it. But um, this stuff, I recorded this a little differently. I would go outside or, or sit around the kitchen and write a song and then when it was done, I go into the studio, where I have a home studio, and record it from top to bottom, and then go out and write another song and come in and record it. Usually I would write all the songs, and then you go in and record them all in the studio. So this was a little different like that, and, and because I, could, I played all the, most of the instruments on it, it was easy to do that um, without having to call people in and wait for them and all that kind of thing, and I could just jump right in and do it. So it kind of facilitated the recording, which is probably why there's there's 20 songs and not the usual 12 or 14 yeah. or whatever. Do lyrics come easily to you? Did, did the lyrics come, uh, you know, do they pour out of you or are they are they a labour of love or what? how does that process work for you? Oh, yeah, both. both. It depends. Um, sometimes uh, it just flows and other times uh, it's sluggish and you got to, and it doesn't mean that it's going to be less meaningful or... or worse if it's if it's hard to to get through um i i i put a lot into the lyrics because the mu- the music kind of just comes you know I, either i like what i'm playing or i don't if i like it i finish it if i don't we i toss it but the lyrics you have time to work on within a within a parameter you know and within some kind of a discipline so it it does i, I love it because it does spark original ideas for me Sometimes it's easy, sometimes it's hard. Yeah. Like, like anything, it's a nebulous art form and nobody really knows, no writer really understands it. So uh, we're just lucky it comes through at all. It's an unquantifiable uh, art form, isn't it, really? You, you can't say, oh, yeah, that one's a six out of ten, that one's a five. They just come and they, they work yeah. for you, you or they, you can or they don't. You can sometimes say, you know, yeah, that moment sparked, this song, which happens a lot, but to get an actual song that says something that you were feeling is that takes a lot of sweat. Yeah, love, sex, and death—they're the three major uh, topics that uh, the boxes that you tick for topics for your for your songs. Is that right? Yes, I just find myself, you know, before when I was younger, of course, it was all about sex and and conquering and you know, bravado and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But certainly as I got older, hopefully you're not still, you know, hopefully a, me at 74 is not writing the same things I'm writing about when I was 21. Hopefully I've grown a little and, um, you know, I've, I read a lot. I think a lot about things and uh, and had a lot of deaths around me and, um, and sought God ever since I... Uh, 
I moved away from an absolute, you know, full-on Bible Christian understanding. Um, I've been searching ever since, and uh, and you know, sex is always in there, and love is in there. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the death, uh, unfortunately, was uh, is a is a part of this album in terms of some of the people, some of the really important people around you. Um, your sound man who who passed away at the end of last year. Yeah, Matty Spindell. I dedicated the album to him. He was a really lovely guy. Um, he was my front of house engineer and my studio engineer for 25 years. And um, I spent more time with him than I did my wife. You know, when we were <laughs> on the road, we weren't on the road, we were in the studio. So, um, and he was one of those kind of guys that was always always bright and cheery and and... You never thought he'd go away, you know, or you thought, well, if he did, I, I probably won't miss him that much. But it's been a giant, giant hole. And uh, we've all missed him so much, and I still miss him. And and he was, he used to really champion my songwriting. You know, I'd go in there and put a guitar and a rough vocal down, and I'd come back next guy, and, no, this is crap. Don't, let's, let's just throw it out. And he'd go, no, no, it's really, it's really good. You know, let's finish it. He championed me like that, which was, is very rare. Um, without it being, you know, having elements of a sycophant, you know, it was not that. It was uh, just a good belief in me. He always said he loved loved my songwriting. Which uh, to have someone that loves what you do involved in your in your production of something is very, you've got to be very fortunate. Yeah, the- yeah and I wrote "Box with the Angels" about him. Oh, okay. I, I figured that was the, the the song that you'd written about him. There's there's all sorts of uh, sounds on this album. There's all sorts of uh, different kind of influences. Uh, there's a song on it that I love called "This Town," which has kind of got some Beatlesh um, uh, sort of feel to it. When I listened to it, I don't know whether that was in your head when you wrote it. The Beatles, yeah, dude, they're always in my head. Yeah. <laughs> I, I took inspiration from Sergeant Pepper's in only not saying it's Sergeant Pepper's only in that they it was it's diverse musically the m- musical styles are a little uh, a little diverse um, I didn't it's not you know the same song twenty times and um, the Beatles are always there I, uh, I I think actually probably less in this one. Uh, the, the, although it is in the hooks, I mean, uh, like uh, the Beatles were the the king of, of hooks and hooks have always been important to me, the big chorus. That's always what I've focused on when I'm trying to gather the song together. Is the chorus strong enough? Does it does it hold up? Is it a crescendo that, that makes sense within the song? Does it lift the song, you know? And... Uh, and the Beatles were so great. Even their bri- even their bridge, you know, the middle eight of a song lifted the song, whereas mm. most people's bridge is like a downer. And and certainly, uh, like Jesse's girl had a great bridge, had has, has a very uplifting bridge. And I think that is you know definitely inspiration of the Beatles that you can't you can't let a song down anywhere. You've got to keep if you're going to do a middle eight, it's got to be a You've got to be a reason to do the middle eight, not just to take a break from the chorus. When you write, do you write with your own voice in your head? Do you singing it, or do you hear other people singing it? Or yeah, it's always me. Um, I I do a lot of my write, recording writing. You know, I I don't write no tape music, so I sing it into a tape machine first, and now we have our iPhones. But I usually sing it in a falsetto. You know, like like just just to get the melody out. Um, and sometimes I'll find when I go into record, I'll f- find that I 
I recorded it in a too higher key <laughs> for me because I did it in falsetto. But uh, most of the time, you know, I like to reach for notes because I think it makes it exciting. Yeah. Most singers do that. Most singers record on the edge of their uh, edge of their range just because it's exciting. It sounds sounds better. It's nice um, when you get to our age that you're actually able to have a falsetto still. <laughs> it disappeared actually right now because we've been the first thing that goes on the road when we do a lot of shows is my falsetto. Uh, yeah, it's a little <laughs> scratchy. <laughs> um, you mentioned Jesse's Girl. Is that a song that still holds a special place in your in your heart as as well as obviously your set list? Yeah, definitely. I mean, my life, you know, my, there's my life before Jesse's Girl and my life after Jesse's Girl, and it, it changed everything. It was a first hit, and it uh, and and now it seems to have had grown and got a life of its own. I mean, it's it's the song that you know, as soon as you start it, all the all the iPhones light up all over the audience. You see little kids singing the verses in the audience. It's uh, it's true. I, I'm I'm actually amazed because it's nothing to do with me. I just wrote the song. The song went out, had its life, and then it had a rebirth, and just seems to uh, be one of those songs that's 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 out there that signifies something to someone. Everyone always says, you know, if you want to get anyone on the dance floor, play Jesse's Girl. Yeah. Jesse is a friend. Yeah, I know he's been a good friend of mine. Lately something's changed, it ain't hard to define Jesse's got himself a girl and I wanna make her mine And she's watching him with those eyes And she's loving with that body, I just know it And he's holding her in his arms late, late at night Um, it's been covered by uh, and used in a number of different projects. I, I mean, the Chipmunks did a version of it at one stage, I believe. <laughs> how'd you, how'd you yeah, feel I about that? I thrilled about that, but yeah. <laughs> it's been real singers. <laughs> I heard actually Sean, Sean Mendes did it when he went to Australia. Yeah, someone sent me a video of him doing Jesse's Girl. And, you know, there's been some great versions and some not-so-great versions. I heard of, I've heard school... Brass bands doing versions is pretty horrible, but uh, there's been uh, there was a, actually a a gay singer here, a woman who did it as you know a gay person singing to a girl she wants, which was and it was slowed down. It was actually very sexy. Okay, uh, what about when they used it in Boogie Nights? Was that something that you just said, oh yeah, let them use it, and didn't know how they were going to use it, or because that became a very um, pivotal yeah, they, part of they the always film. asked. You know, like it was in 13 going on 32 where they actually used the video of it as well. And they've used it in other movies, but they have to ask. I, I don't know if they ask out of courtesy or once it's out if they can use it. You know, you have to get paid, whatever. I mean, but Boogie Nights was a surprise because I just wasn't in that. I wasn't in that circuit at, at the time. And uh, people started saying, wow, this movie is this really great scene where they're playing Jesse's girl like really is so bizarre and like and uh, and that was kind of the start of the rebirth of the song was, was Boogie Nights actually when I did uh, um, uh, Ricky and the Flash with Meryl Streep we had a party and the director of Boogie Nights was there and I went up to him and thanked him for you know <laughs> giving it his new lease starting the new lease of life 
What's that like doing a movie with Meryl Streep, for goodness sake? It uh, didn't suck, as, yeah. they, as, uh, <laughs> as Dudley Moore would say. Um, the, the great thing also was the director, Jonathan Demme, who, who was amazing. I'd never worked with a director who of that caliber before. He, he did Silence of the Lambs and, you know, I mean, just amazing stuff. And he was just... He was just so good, and Meryl was too. I mean, you know, you can't work with someone in a scene and be going, wow, she's really good at this, you know, because <laughs> you have to be in the scene. So, but I did see her be really brave, and and, uh, and she was just a great person too. Um, but Jonathan was was just this unique guy. Just uh, I just loved him, and uh, and sadly he, he died not long after, Um he was saying, yeah, i got another part in a movie for you and you won't be a musician and all this. And But he, uh, we lost him before then, but he was a beautiful human being. Yeah. Where's your happy place, Rick, in terms of uh, what you enjoy doing the most from a performance point of view? Is it is it the songwriting? Is it the singing? Is it the acting? Is there, is there one that actually really does give you joy? Um, I love recording if I've think I've written a good song that's really exciting to me because it's all experiment and but when I'm in the moment like act I get a, a high from acting if the writing's good as I get from performing live if the show is good or I get from recording a song if I think the song is good it's all it all comes from the same place just acting and musicians are, are a different tool set but it's all from the same desire and the same, I guess, creative place or whatever it is in in me that that uh, where I can do something, you know, that people seem to understand. Because yeah. that's really what about songwriting was always about sharing a feeling, a human feeling and and having someone go hear your song go, yeah, that's that's how I feel. <laughs> When Working Class Dog came out, I mean, there was a, a sense of, you know, here's, here's your album, it's out there, and, and you could enjoy that moment. Is releasing an album now, it, it's a totally different world. People find music in all different ways and different places that not traditional, as you and I grew up hearing it on the radio or, you know, the next generation saw it on TV. Is it different? Does it make releasing an album a, a really different experience for you and is less enjoyable or the same? Um. It's really enjoyable and I get excited when it's released because I'm a big believer in magic. You know, that's why I stayed in the music business. I, I knew some magic would happen somewhere and something would, would happen. And it did. And even though it took 15 years, it, it did happen overnight and it was like magic. And, and I can't explain how it happened and nobody can. And uh, everyone thought, you know, we, we organized General Hospital and the release of Jesse's Girl, but it was nothing to do with that. It was pure synchronicity, and the people that hired me for General Hospital didn't even know I was a singer. Hmm. And uh, and the record company was holding uh, Working Class Dog because uh, there was ballads and, and disco on the radio, and they didn't know what to do with a guitar-based power pop album. And it was just, you know, so... Um, that I believe there's still magic. I heard actually Ringo, I have friends who play with Ringo and um, I heard him say the other day, yeah, he was having a, a actually it was a while ago. He had an album out and he, and he said, uh, and they said, you know, do you hope for a hit? And he said, we always hope. <laughs> so, so you always do. You always hope that there's going to be something that's going to catch someone's ear or it's going to end up in a movie. It could end up in a movie and or it could be on a TV show. There's been breakaway stuff, songs where they've been in a TV show. And, and uh, 
But, you know, the, the, the radio play is very different now. Yeah. Um, but I still, you know, I wrote and, and still write because I love to do it and I love to put music out. Um, I had three albums out that did nothing before, you know, before Jess's Girl and I kept at it because I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what about a song like, uh, and it's been talked about, uh, you know, a couple of years back of doing a, a Zoot reunion with Russell Morris taking Daryl's part. Uh, what, what about a song like Eleanor Rigby these days, which still to me sounds like uh, one of the great moments in Australian rock history and that's how it's celebrated as it should be. How do you feel about that song these days? Yeah, I'm very proud of it. You know, I, I, it was an arrangement that I basically came up with um, in my mom and dad's house and I remember them coming over and I, I just joined the band. I'd only been in the band a little while. And, and Daryl and I were very into Zeppelin and we saw that on the horizon that heavy stuff was coming, you know, it was coming down soon. And the, the pink pop thing was we're not going to last very long. And so I just, I, am, I tried to imagine how Jimi Hendrix would play Eleanor Rigby. And so I, started, I came up with the, the riff and, and the triads and the riff and everything. And, and I played it for them. And I was really, I thought they go, dude, that's, that's sacrilegious. You can't do that to Eleanor Rigby. But they all loved it. And, uh, you know, eventually we all chimed in our little pieces. But the initial idea and the riff and the, and the approach and the, the long intro and all that, uh, I played for them in my mom and dad's house pretty much certain that they'd think it was crap. <laughs> uh, God, it's a- and, now and now American friends who hear that song, they go, well, it sounds like Black Sabbath. And I'd never heard Black Sabbath. You know, <laughs> I, uh, I was a pop guy. But they, they all think it, you know, the American people who see that think we're like a badass heavy band. They didn't realize we were, we were still getting slagged for wearing pink and being, you know, pansies uh, at that point in yep. Australia and that we were fighting that whole image. Yeah, one times, two times, three times, four was uh, was, a, was a big song back then for Zoot. I remember it very well. They had great songs. I mean, I remember playing, yeah. hearing one times, two times, three times, four and going, wow, that's a great song. I'd love to be in a band with a song like that. <laughs> It was it was it was pretty tough when you first went to America, wasn't it? In that in that early part of the seventies, um, because the, they sort of uh, the pretty boy tag came out and they were trying to make, turn you into that. Yeah, it was. Uh, I I didn't know what teen magazines were because we didn't have them in Australia when I left. There was Go Set and that was it. Yep. You know, you're either in music magazine or you weren't. So I came over here and uh, I started getting all these interviews to these magazines, and I'm going, wow. The album's not even out yet, and they're they're already interested in me. How cool is that? And then the articles started coming out, like stupid stuff about, you know, cuddle up in my arms, or is Rick Springfield too tall to love, and like garbage like this. And I'm going, what is this? And uh, and it's, they did so much of it. And uh, this woman, she's very famous over here, Gloria uh, Gloria Stavers. She's the one who pulled uh, Jim Morrison into the teen magazines and had him, you know, get all sexy in the magazines. And she glommed on to me. She said, if I could have a night in a motel room with Rick Springfield, I'd be happy. She was her, was her <laughs> thing she'd always tell my man. But I didn't know that back then. But she, so she owned 16 magazines. She started be putting, putting me in all these magazines and having my, my zipper pulled down, you know, so that almost there was pubic hair showing and, and, um, 
she pushed me into all these magazines and 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 I was wasn't writing those songs I was writing except for speak to the sky which was actually a hit over here but that was it I was writing what would the children think it was about a woman trying to decide whether she'd leave her husband cuz he's cheating on her unhappy ending was about a guy committing suicide you know and the teen magazines are going out of their minds they're going where's I want to be wanted or cherished you know there's only <laughs> Have him write a teen a teeny song, and so uh, it kind of fell apart because of that. I remember going to Disneyland and 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 all these kids coming up and asking me for an autograph, and I hadn't done anything. I'd just been in the magazines. I was just a face, you know. Yeah. So eventually, I left those managers. It was very difficult. That was when the difficult time started when I left the managers. And Robbie Porter was one, and uh, Steve Binder was the other. Who who. Uh, was the Elvis, you know, directed the Elvis special. And yeah. actually when I met Elvis flying, I said, "Yes, Steve Binder manages me." And Elvis goes, "Oh, I love Steve. Steve, what a great guy." And cuz he was, you know, he'd done the Elvis special and it brought him back. Yeah. But uh, I had to leave them and that's really when things got bad for me. Yeah. Oh, but you got to meet Elvis on a plane. What's that? You got to meet Elvis on a plane, didn't you? Flying to yeah, Hawaii. Yeah, I, I was coming home. Uh was when planes stopped in Hawaii before they uh before they landed in in Sydney, and um, and I got I was in the back of the bus, of course, and I got in the place like seventy three. I guess I still didn't have my green card, so I had to keep going back and forward <laughs> to get uh, work work visas. And he, I walked by, and he's sitting in the first class section. You know, he looked still looked great. He had jet black hair, and he was thin, and he had this powdered blue suit on. He just looked. Awesome. I wasn't actually a fan at the time, but I had a girlfriend in Australia who was. So he did a really thing, thing I've never seen since. But he, uh, before the plane landed, he walked back through the the plane, signing autographs and taking photos. And that's when I I spoke to him. I said, uh, you know, we have a friend in common, Steve Bender, and and I I didn't get. I wish I'd gotten a photo with him because now it's like, oh my God, I was I. With met Elvis and I didn't get a photo, but I I said, could you sign this for my girlfriend because she's a big fan, and he signed it and uh, I put it in my little tape recorder that I had carried with me, and then Customs took it and then because they thought there was porn on it or something I don't know, but when I got it back, the autograph was gone. Oh really? Oh Jesus! Yeah, they stole it, the bastards. Thieving <laughs> bastards! It's it's definitely not on. Hey, you've never done a solo tour of Australia. Would you would you contemplate doing one now, or have we missed the bus? No, no, I'd love to do it. I mean, I miss home. I I imported a, a fifty five FJ Ute because I was missing home. I, I'm, it's the only FJ Ute on the road in America. I'd love to tour. I mean, I, we talked about it when Russell Morris and I did the, a, an album called Jack Chrome and yeah. the Darkness Waltz. Yeah. Um, talked about it then. Uh, Russell talked about uh, me joining his his band, the uh, what are the, the, the Capretos? The Flying Capretos, yeah, yeah. Doing like, like a one-off, you know, couple of shows. Um, and I've looked at touring there myself. I'd love to. I've never... You know, by the time we did the world tours and we got to Japan, I was we were all so exhausted that when they off, you know, said you want to go to Australia, it was like, oh, I just so I was so burned out, you know, I like couldn't do any more. Yeah. Now I regret it very much. Um, I kind of lost my my mojo in Australia, I think, because of that, and and I still consider myself an Aussie. I mean, that was where I was raised and and learned my craft and. Uh, 
and you know it's still home to me. I mean, I collected the whole set of the Colts 1950s footy cards because I missed home. Did you really? Wow. Yeah. Goodness me. I, I saw an interview with you uh, and you mentioned the Fitzroy Football Club, which uh, came out of the blue uh, on an, an interview that I was watching the other night and you, uh, someone mentioned FFC or something. You said, oh, the, that could be the Fitzroy Football Club and I almost fell out of the chair. <laughs> No, I remember I, I was big. Essendon was my team, but, um, you know, was, I was into all the same stuff any kid was in yeah, Australia. Yeah. yeah. Did you did you tour Vietnam as a member of MPD? Yeah, I did, actually. Yeah, well, it was uh, Pete Watson, who I saw open for the Beatles when he was playing in the Phantoms, eventually ended up coming to my house in Sindel, my mom and dad's house, and asking them if I'd if they'd let me join his band who were, that was then was the Rock House after MPD had had their big thing. And I and they said, yeah, so I didn't have to go back to school. I got actually kicked out of 11th grade, which is, what, fifth form for not going to school. So, um, uh, so I joined Pete's band, and that eventually morphed into MPD 2. Yeah. And Danny, Danny came back, Danny Finley came back, and then we Pete said one day we're going overseas, and I thought, Wow, Japan, you know, England. Uh, we ended up in Vietnam for for about four months, and it was pretty friggin' hairy. We got shot at and rocketed, and I almost blew the band up with a hand grenade, which is a whole other story. Shot everything from 45s to tanks, went up in, in Cobra helicopters on missions. This was before, you know, all the press was following around and you couldn't do anything. The soldiers were, were amazing. And then uh, we came back from there and formed Wickedy Whack. And that was when Pete died. Pete got a disease, a lung disease over there and yeah. passed away about a year after we got back. Oh, okay. Um, you're fit and healthy and well. You you work out every day, I believe? I do, yeah. And I, you know, yeah, I work out. Very important for me to, to stay as healthy as I can because um, I love what I do and um, it's become a little bit of a thing, you know, <laughs> for me. Well, you, you look fantastic. The the album's fantastic. It sounds great. There's there's so many. Uh, I mean, twenty great uh, great three minute pop songs with big hooks in them. You've 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 delivered on what you what you're searching for. Yeah, I, I'm very happy with it. You know, it's uh, well. I wish radio was, was was different. You know, but we all do. I mean, everybody. You know, everyone that had. I'm lucky to have had hits. You know, back when radio was uh, was friendlier. Jesse's Girl was picked up by the, the DJs. You know, it wasn't even released as a single. They were, back then, they were allowed, if they liked a song, they could play it. Yeah. And if they got phones, then it was, you know, a big feather in their cap, and they started getting phones on Jesse's Girl, and they called the record uh, company and said, you should release this as a single. And the record company went, oh, okay. So they put it out, and it was uh, the D- American DJs that discovered that song, and that wouldn't happen now. Yeah. Couldn't happen now, you know. No, a computer picks it and a computer programs it, and uh, um, yep. that that actually having a, a a single in your hand is is a long past gone, forgotten piece of history. Yeah, yeah, I miss the, the good old days, but you know, there's good things about the new days. So yeah, absolutely. Congratulations on the album, mate, and thank you for spending some time having a chat. It's uh, it's fabulous. I hope we get to see you here live. It would be it would be great. Do the Flying Capretos. That's a that's a killer lineup. You'd be great in that. Yeah, yeah. No, Russell's having a lot of fun. I, I talk to Russell a lot, you know, email and everything. Obviously, he's a, a, a real good friend, and we both, you know, miss Daryl very much. So uh, you never know. I mean, I'd love to come over and play my show, too. I have an, a killer band and... 
So we'll see. Yeah, no, that'd be good. Thanks for your time, Rick. Really appreciate it. All the best. Rick Springfield, we're going to play the title track of uh, the new album, Automatic, uh, to finish the show off, and that's coming up in just a sec. Uh, Brian, we've got some great guests coming up, and uh, we've we've had some terrific chats of recent times. Uh, thoroughly loved having a chat to Les Gock. Wasn't he good? Oh, Les Gock from Hush was fantastic, <laughs> and I've been a long-time fan of Hush since I was 14, and particularly Les, so, you know, great to have him on the show, and very... Well-spoken man. Yes. No, terrifically uh, entertaining human uh, being, Les. Really yeah, very articulate and a uh, lot more to him than what people are probably aware of. Yeah, I don't agree with that. Uh, Stuart Cooper, who's, of course, been a, a terrific rock writer, uh, band manager, a promoter, but most notably known as a rock writer for uh, days in Rare magazine. He's done a book about his his life and time, so we, we sat down and talked to him about that. Hasn't he got some stories to tell? Goodness gracious. Well, his, his Mick Jagger story is great and his uh, Stephen Kilby story is great. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, he, he was really good. And uh, from the early morning file of uh, interviews that uh, we've done too, uh, Gino Vanelli, going to talk to him uh, about uh, his life and times, and Leslie Kanawa, who, of course, was the uh, lead singer of Promises, who had that massive hit, Baby, It's You. So they're all coming up uh, with some other bits and pieces as well in the forthcoming episodes of The Life of Brian, thanks to our very good friends at Murcotts. Good on you, Murcotts. And, wow, that chick did have massive hits, didn't she? Yeah, all right. All right, that's enough. Uh, now, you take care of yourself and we will see you on the next edition of uh, Life of Brian. Dot, dot, dot. Mannix, that is, d- just just get back to the housework, would you, Sadie? Yeah, all right. Do you sing- oh, I'm not singing Sadie. <laughs> Gee, I was going to say, you sing Sadie as you're going around. You, you should. Just for the right. na- for the neighbour's benefit, either if you don't well, sing it, just put it on, put it on Spotify or something, and play it. Come well, on. I, I, pl- I play music while I do housework. Well, so a I'll, little bit, I'll, you know. I'll give Sadie a crack and see if it inspires me to, you know, to sweep quicker and do the job better. Yeah. I'll try it. All right. Uh, well, <laughs> off, do your chores, scrub your floors, dear old Sadie. We'll talk to you next time. All right. Cheers, Kev. Some cortex Everybody's got the usual defects
Side 